You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast, the annual ideas festival produced by Editorial Intelligence. What matters in media? Michael Wolfe, award-winning contributing editor to Vanity Fair and a columnist of GQ, is in conversation with Peter Bale, the general manager of CNN's digital division. Thanks very much, everybody, and thanks, Julia, for having us. Um, as Michael pointed out, it's an SRO evening, which mm-hmm. afternoon, which is uh, standing room only. Um, J- uh, Jemima Khan really did make that point yesterday, and it couldn't be put better that Michael is the angry man in the crowd. Um, I'm going to give him a short introduction. Chur- and I- Churlish. Right? Churlish. Uh, the churlish man in the crowd. That's fine. I'm getting... <laughs> churlish is the least of your worries today. Um, I think it's always best to start with a short introduction to someone like Michael about what they do rather than where they're from uh, and rather than their origins. Because being British, because he's not British, you can't tell where he's from, you can't tell which class he is, and you can't tell whether he's even marginal aristocracy because he's American. Um, Michael right now has a, an unusual uh, setting for a, an American journalist perhaps. He writes for The Guardian. Uh, in the UK, and he writes for GQ in the UK. He's a columnist for Vanity Fair. So Condé Nast clearly thinks you still have something to offer. Uh, And one of the things that I think is most interesting about Michael is that unlike people who pontificate about the media, Michael does it as well. He's put his money and his career and uh, and other people's money behind a number of ventures over the years, some successful, some not. Lost enormous amounts of other people's and he's the founder and proprietor of a very clever news aggregation site called Newser.com. So there's your plug, Michael. He's also a best-selling author, uh, particularly for Burn Rate, uh, and a book called Autumn of the Moguls, which I, re- I recall trying to read quite a long time ago. Uh, and the thing that I found about it at the time, which we'll get into, is that in certain places there seemed to be a lot about you and your observations and, and less about the moguls. But we'll get into that about one particular mogul towards the end. Um, And we'll deal with a particular mogul right at the end, who I think you're all probably keen to hear about. Uh, The things we've we've decided to do, we're going to compare the UK media market, the UK media landscape, to that in the United States, because Michael's unusually well-placed to do that. We'll look a little bit at uh, Lord Leveson and the implications of that. We'll touch on Woody Allen, because you're a New Yorker. Uh, And we'll touch on what's called the trial of the century. And of course, with a foot in both camps, Michael understands UK libel and defamation law only too well. Uh, And we'll also look at what's happening in the digital revolution in the media business, which I think will flow through to advertising tomorrow. All in 30 minutes. All in 30 minutes. So, what motivates you, Michael? I mean, one of the things that you can't uh, avoid in your biography are lines like, and again, Jemima got it yesterday with the angry man. New Republic called you possibly the bitchiest uh, media Bigfoot writing today. Um, what's with that as a, as a style, as an approach? You know, I, I think a, a, one of the things that happens to journalists, and I don't think this is, this is particularly new, is that they, journalists start to see themselves as, as politicians. Um, um, who can they do favors for? Who do they have to be nice to? Who do they have an alliance with? Um, and um, I mean, that's um, um, the way many careers have to go, and they use them. Uh, that's a way to get access, and I'm, I'm sure people are 
um, that produces something worthwhile, but it's not what I do. As a matter of fact, I mean, n not to be um, grandiose about this, but I'm, I'm not actually, not foremost a journalist, I'm a, I'm a writer. Um, that's what I set out to do. And what's the, what's the, the difference, Michael, in that, in that regard? Because you do do contemporary journalism, but you do, are you saying you see it in an authorial, more authorial yeah, well, fashion? Yeah, I mean, I, I think my, my goal is to say, um, is, to, is to try to say what, um, um, what people are feeling but are unable to express and, um, and to, to say what people think but are unwilling to say. But you have a reputation for really not just biting the hand that feeds you, but you know, tearing it right off and burying it in a shallow grave. I like to do that too, yeah. Why? <laughs> tell, us, tell us where that comes from. Were you, you, know, you, you started theoretically as a copy boy while at, the, while at Columbia. You know, right. were, you, were you this grumpy then? <coughs> well, I, went to, I started, started at, at the New York Times. It was the only job I ever wanted. And uh, I, I got this job and I walked into the newsroom and 10 minutes later I, I, I knew this was all wrong. Life had gone. Um, if this was life, I was not going to make <clears> it. How long ago was that? Um, that was many, many, many years ago. That was about 40 years mm -hmm. ago. And what was it? Tell us a little bit about that atmosphere, because you know I think there are a lot of journalists in this room. I did, in fact, meant to. Meant to there's a lot of actual journalists and people who would think of themselves it was as very journalists. Dirty, dirty. Everything was dirty, gray, the smoke, um, and everyone. <clears throat> uh, the, uh, the New York Times newsroom was filled with people, um, all who had a tick, whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, and then. You saw yourself, you saw you're looking, oh my God, that's going to be me. Um, yeah. So you saw yourself in 40 years as a crusty old sub with a Yeah, pack of I mean, cigarettes. it was an incredibly unhappy place. It's still an unhappy place. Um, and so, you know, and I kind of, I, I suppose at that point began this, this, um, this love-hate relationship with this profession that I'm, that, I, that I'm in. I thought this was a, the New York Times, this is a bad place to be. This is not what I want. Um, it's not really what I could do. So you have no compunction in taking on anybody, any organization, any, any person? Apparently not. Yeah. So My Mysteriously, because I, I kind of go into things saying, okay, yeah, I, I can make a deal here, I can make a, an alliance, I'm gonna go to the top. Um, um, I'm gonna really be friends with so-and-so. Um, and then, um, you know, and then I, I, I do it and I think, oh, they're gonna love this. Yeah, so, I, so, I don't know. I don't know what happens. So Jack, Fe Jack Schaefer, who's a, a media correspondent for Reuters, tweeted something quite funny this week, which was uh, a, a thing about everybody having a, a desire to be loved and liked. And Jack said, clearly they've never met Michael Wolff. I, <laughs> and I, I, don't, I actually have that desire too. I'm just, just not very competent at it. So one of the people that you've, you've uh, taken down over the years uh, is something of a national treasure here, and it's Tina Brown. So some people here, I think, have probably worked with and for Tina Brown. Other, you know, other people probably admire her. Um, what's, what's with that? It makes, it makes the Jeremy Clarkson, Piers Morgan thing look like a, a tea party. I don't know. I just, I literally can't help myself. Yeah, um, why? Um, there's Go something about, about Tina, I'm sure, who I'm sure is a very nice person, and she has done, done you know, lots of interesting and, and, um, and worthwhile things. Um, but there's another aspect of, of her that is, that is, for one thing, it's, it's, it's incredibly transparent, often kind of comical um, in the laughing at her 
not with her since. Um, and um, um, her, her, her motivation, there's a, there's a kind of, 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 of impossible to miss cravenness, mm -hmm. which I think people miss. They say, oh my God, how, how can you say that? And then I think, oh my God, how can you not say that? So but over and over again, I've... I've um, but with people like her, I mean, she's very similar age to you, similar background in a sense, although coming, coming from the UK, and she, like you, has had some courage in, in, in making investments with other people's money. I know you've done music with your money as well, but you know, she's, she's tried. She did Talk magazine. She, she tried with The Daily Beast, tried with Newsweek. Uh, you have been, in various things I've read, quite generous about her time at Vanity Fair and The New Yorker, which will surprise her. Yeah, I don't know what happened to... to, to um, I mean, the, it's a fascinating career. So remove the personal th this, which I, I, kind of, I kind of do. I think there, there's a moment in which you step onto the stage and you become fodder for, um, um, for everyone else who's, who's um, looking at the stage or on the stage. And this is what, what, what Tina did. She, I mean, and I don't think there's any need, need to apologize. She has done the same thing to other people. Um, and, and something happened um, in her career. Enormous success and then abject failure. Um, and for any number of reasons, that's inherently interesting. interesting. Yeah. Um, and you can say, okay, give her the benefit of the doubt, give her this. But as I say, I'm not a politician here. I'm just someone trying to write this, tell this, this, this story. And I tell the story about the... I, my, my story is about the media business because it is, well, first, it's the industry that is most influential in our time, but it also exposes the people who are in it so, um, um, so, so, so keenly. You can't miss it because they're all, um, you know, it's all about me, me. It's the is spotlight. It, is it's, it or is it about a mission to actually explain and to tell stories and that we're just being incredibly unfair if we think it is all about them? No, I don't think it's. I think that's that's baloney. Um, it's you go into the media business because it's. Um, um, or let me put it this way: you rise in the media business because you make it about you, because you want to rise, because you go to the light. Excellent. Which is where why I'm where I am and why you're where you are. Um, Nick Denton, another another Englishman in New York, uh, like like Tina, says that you insult people for attention. Is there any truth in that, that you just, you just, you know, where other people would use the F-bomb, you use a, a bomb about somebody? I, you know, I don't know. I'm, I've been wondering about Nick Denton for a little. There's that, you know, on the... Office. Does everybody know Nick Denton and Gorka, former FT correspondent, created a rather amazing media business? And on the autism spectrum. Yeah. Which, where is he on the autism spectrum? He's, he's, uh, he's, up, yeah, yeah. he's over the hump. He'll do, he'll, he'll do well in Silicon Valley then, yeah. Um. And then the other day, you, you got in a spat with Henry Blodgett, the securities analyst who almost single-handedly created the dot-com bust. Um, he accused you of misrepresenting his, his business. And, and this is from a man who's been banned from the securities industry for life. But, um, 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 yeah, yeah, I mean, he's a business guy. You know, he's trying to build a business. Somebody yeah. comes along and says, and says, hey, wait a minute, your business is a little, this is a little fishy. Um, do you think you have you the know. moral high ground? Or do you just claim it? I, you know, I, I don't think about those, those, those things. I think, I think really literally about one thing, which is the sentence. Yeah. Can I write the sentence and can it resonate and um, move people and... 
and then at some point, is it true? But that's probably further. Down. Yeah. So truth. <laughs> so truth is sacrosanct. Uh, truth is uh, has yes, a truth, has, is handy. truth has a place, yeah. but let's not go Excellent. crazy. Okay. So let me turn to the UK media scene and perhaps some of the differences between the UK media scene and the US media scene. I think one of the interesting things is that you do work here. You come here every eight weeks or so. You go deep on it. We talk about it. Uh, and, and many of the people in this room would consider you friends uh, and, until you've done an interview on them. Um, can I ask a question in this room? How many of you now believe in the principle uh, that are laid out in the Leveson report or have been assumed to be in the Leveson report that there ought to be some legislative backing for press regulation. Is that Yasmin there? I can't believe a journalist is doing that. It's definitely another journalist is doing that. Okay, great. So a very small number of people. Just how many people in this room either make their money from journalism or are journalists? Okay, so I'll assume that the ones who didn't put their hands up. Uh, so that was actually, I'm quite surprised at the number of journalists who believe, who, who believe in that. And how many prefer industry regulation Okay, and how many prefer absolutely no regulation at all? Okay, the libertarians can see me and Douglas Carswell afterwards. Um, Michael, what, do you, what, what, is that, what does that tell you, that uh, these people would surrender what you think of as First Amendment-led press freedom no, to think, regulation? No, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's a, to me an astounding cultural gulf. Yeah. I mean, it's like we don't... We're... we're um, um, in, in this respect, utterly different people, utterly different cultures. Um, um, and I don't know what to make of it. I'm, I mean, I'm always kind of holding my head and thinking, oh my God, um, um, you know, what is, what is going on here? Um, and it's, and it's some, somewhat, is, it's a, a kind of lack of understanding um, about where the difference lies. And, and I'll explain, the U.S. The US position um, um, is, is no regulation, um, no law. There will be no laws made. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's the First Amendment. It's the most sacrosanct, sacrosanct um, um, point of the U.S. Constitution, Apart from, apart arguably. from bearing arms. Um, you know, um, and, um, um, and, and it's never an issue. It does not come up, not in any venue, not in any... Um, um, uh, not attached to any issue, not in any circumstance. It doesn't come up. The idea that the press could be regulated would be, I, I, it just doesn't happen. So um, why does it come up here so much? Is it, I don't know. Is it, is, it, is, it, is it a class thing that we, that we think it's like the Archbishop of Canterbury is going to tell us how to live? That we, all, that we in this room want to tell everybody else I mean, how I th to live? I, I, think it, it, I think that maybe, I wrote a piece about this because I, I was just confounded and I thought, well, maybe this is just about fundamental Britishness. Um, um, it's the polite thing. It's, the, um, it's the, um, the reluctance to engage on a personal level. It's the, um, um, it's, it, it is, it's class, it's hierarchy. I don't know, but what it isn't is about um, freedom of the press. So therefore, and I think you have to come to terms with this, you don't believe in freedom of the press, which is fine. Most of the world doesn't, but that includes you. So in a world where most cloud companies are based in the United States, some of the most powerful media brands are based in the United States now, Google is based there, Facebook is there, are we not entering a world, in fact, where any press regulation that the UK deploys is utterly irrelevant 
because of it's, we're actually in a First Amendment world because yeah, the internet I, yeah, I mean, totally, is ruled by right. the First on, Amendment. On top, so, so you might add that other thing is, is the bubble that, that, that you exist in. Um, I mean, even the whole, this whole Levison thing occurs against the background of, in, of, 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 of a radical transformation in, in how we get information, where information comes, who controls information, and largely that little, those little facts were not addressed at all um, in, during, during the inquiry. So, so, yeah, so the other thing is, and, and, and maybe this is why it, why it happens, is that you all know it doesn't matter. Um, is so it's kind of preserving so what, what, what a little, matter? A you, little mean, you mean these regulation. Yeah. You can regulate until the cows come home, and you're uh, and it's it's irrelevant. Um, um, you know you're going to get. I mean the uh, you're a, a, a minuscule part of the English language market. So I, I tend to believe it's because we don't trust people to make their own decisions. Uh, in the case of broadcasting, of course, it's because there's a theoretical limited asset of, of state-owned ban state bandwidth. What, what about public interest? Because that's come up a lot in this whole Levison thing. Do you, do you inherently believe that the public interest is really just what the public is interested in? Yeah, of course I do. So the duh. The I mean, that's literally, from a, an American ex uh, perspective, the duh question. Yeah. That is what the public interest is. So you said, so, t t tell is. me what, again, again what you said the other day about Millie Dowler in that context. The public interest versus the public interest. And I think in the in the Millie Dowler case, you had some fairly strong views about the concern of her parents relative to the public interest in that story and relative to hacking. Yeah, it. I don't care about the concerns of Millie Dowler's parents. Um, I, I think it's an irrelevant. I, I don't even know how it. You know, it was just one of those things that obviously, for reasons of uh, of sentiment, came about. But Millie pa Millie Dowler's parents were not damaged by whatever. Um, the Murdoch press did. They were damaged because their daughter died. Um, and so that was just a, a, a confusion that comes about because, um, because without a, 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 a firm marker in the sand that says freedom of the press is this and it exists and you can't tamper with it, then you start to say, you start to, you start to blame the press. So, so let me ask a question of the audience here about a case just recently. Does, it, does anybody feel any sympathy with Mick Jagger over the exposés about him this week? Is anybody concerned at the intrusion there? Okay, so I don't think... I, and I was... I don't think you are, right? on the floor. I heard the, the, the line um, the, to, um, that um, we shouldn't intrude on Mick's grief. I'm rolling on the floor about this. Um, Mick's grief, give me a break. Um, um, I, you know, first thing, what does that even mean, intrude on mixed grief? Um, um, I, you know, we're, we're suddenly making, um, uh, we're, we're doing somebody else's job. Um, is, is that though because Mick Jagger sold himself to the media and to us so long ago that his privacy is irrelevant? Well, yeah, to begin with, yeah. yes. But I, I mean, I think you can extend that, that, that um, that, that far and wide, you can extend that to the Dowler family. Um, you know, I, I mean, people have, uh, you, uh, people are gonna be hurt. People are gonna feel badly. So, um, but ultimately, what you have to ask is, are they, and you would in the US context, say, okay, well, are they damaged? You know, what, what happened here? You know, just because, you know, you can't protect people's feelings. So one person whose feelings you've allegedly insulted is Rupert Murdoch. Um, I, I mentioned, who in this room follows that view that Rupert Murdoch has coarsened public debate and discourse in the UK? 
Excellent. We're going, Michael's going to tear you apart in just a second. So you've... I don't, think you build, I don't think you buy that. I think you buy that Rupert is... You have the Australian cover. It's a nice cover, though, isn't it? It's one of the reasons I chose it, because it's a nice paper one. So, you know, Rupert is, is accused of everything, from being Beelzebub bub to being a genius. You spent 50 hours with him to get this book done. You've had paid a big price for that afterwards. Tell us a little bit about where he stands. Where he stands? In, well, where you think he stands. Um, uh, in the scheme of where? I mean, he's, okay, you know, so Rupert, he's, Rupert is, I mean, the reason I wrote a book of, of, about him is that he's a, just a great character. Um, um, you know, and whether he's right or wrong, whether the world is benefits or not from Rupert Murdoch was not my concern. My concern was, um, was to tell this, this incredible story. Um, nobody in our time has held power as long and as successfully as Rupert Murdoch. I mean, that's a big thing. And, and I think you now think he might come out on top in all of this, right? That he's separated the companies and that he will actually emerge not only unscathed, but stronger. Well, you know, I mean, I always think that Rupert is going down. Um, and then, um, then miraculously, he, he does not. And I think that he's actually in, at the age of 83, he's... He now has assembled the largest print company in, um, in, in the world, the most well-resourced print company in, in the world. And if he makes the bet, which I think he's going to make, um, that, um, that, that print everywhere is the ultimate distressed asset, um, that it's ready to be bought up for, for, um, uh, for pennies on the dollar, um, and that it's worth significantly more than that, then, then he makes an incredible... So he'll have the last laugh in this, in this tremendous turmoil that's going on in the business. He'll I, have you know, I, I tend to believe that, that at some point I will have the last laugh over Rupert, but um, you never know. So I believe you saw Rupert the other day in circumstances that are weirdly similar to the, to the, to the meeting you had recently or bump... Uh, or, Eye contact you had with Rebecca Brooks at the at the Old Bailey. There's something as I am. Uh, read, read, pick up this month's GQ for the for the um, for the Old Bailey connection. But tell us a little bit about this thing with Rupert last week. So I haven't seen Rupert since um, uh, since since my book come, came out. Um, since he sort of cut me, and um, um, and there was a period in which in which I appeared in the in the New York Post on a um, on a on a on a daily basis, um, in um, problematic terms, let's let's just uh, put it that way. Um, and after that, I kind of vowed, okay, you know, he wants to play that way, fine. I will dedicate myself to going after Rupert in every venue that I have. Um, <laughs> um, and since I am the only person outside his family and his closest executives who actually has a, a relationship with 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 Rupert, who really knows, um, um, can make some claim on what he thinks, that's given me a, um, some quite a privileged position to really, really, really get under his skin. Um, <laughs> but I haven't seen him um, since then. So that's um, so. But I was in um, twelve eleven Sixth Avenue, which is which is the News Corp headquarters um, on Forty Seventh and Sixth, um, um, and. Um, I was in the building seeing someone else, not 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 related to to, to Murdoch business, and 
I came down on the, on the elevator, um, and I was the only one on the elevator. I'm standing very near the, the, the edge, waiting to get out. The door is open, and you know, literally, not six, maybe nine inches away, uh, there's someone who I, seems very familiar to me. Um, um, I, matter of fact, and then the first thing I think, I thought, oh, who is that? It looks great. And then I thought, shit. <laughs> and at that moment, I could see it in his eyes. He thought, shit. <laughs> and there was no way you could kind of avoid this and that. I mean, we were there, so we're, we're just literally locked. Um, and it's like, what, 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 what to do? I had no idea. And so I, I just, so I, I, I said sheepishly, a little flirtatiously, but she, sheepishly, I said, hello, Rupert. <laughs> and instinctively, my hand went out. And my, as my hand got near him, he threw up his arms um, in, in complete revulsion. Um, recoiled in, um, um, and then and then started to do the the, the Murdoch mumble, which and he hunched down, and then he swept past me in in into the elevator, really knocking my shoulder. I'm thinking this guy is in great shape; he's going to be around forever. <laughs> um, um, and that was it. He went in, the doors closed, and I went out, and I thought, oh God, that was kind of scary. But look at this. It's a bromance, isn't it? You're turning more into him, and he's turning more into you. It's, it's totally, and those glasses and that haircut, that is he's, totally, he took that completely from me. Excellent. All right, thank you very much, Michael, Michael Wolf. Um, Julia, am I allowed any questions from the audience for Michael for two ticks? Okay, thank you very much, everybody. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Sarah Peters for Editorial Intelligence. With thanks to Vodafone, FT Weekend, CNN, GQ, and all the partners and participants who made and make Names Not Numbers possible. Thank you for listening.